Hi, I'm Mark Morenshaw from Newsdata. Our skilled journalists spend hundreds of hours each week researching, writing, and editing content for our energy newsletters. For independent, expert coverage of Western U.S. electric and natural gas issues, visit Newsdata.com for your free trial subscription. Broadband. We need it for work and for school, for our health and our economy. What's being done to bring broadband internet access within reach of every American? Let's talk about it now on Rural Broadband Today. Here's your host, Stephen Smith. And thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Rural Broadband Today. I am not Stephen Smith. This is Andy John substituting um, as the podcast host for Stephen here at the Fiber Connect 2021 conference from the Fiber Broadband Association. Today, we're taking a look at the people and issues shaping the rural broadband story, and I'm excited to have you join us. My guest today is John Green, who is CEO of the New Lisbon Telephone Company in New Lisbon, Indiana. John, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Perfect. I am too. Uh, You probably noticed the background noise, like we normally say on these podcasts. It's not background noise, it's ambiance, because we're here at the center of the broadband world this week. We are at the uh, Fiber Broadband Association, Fiber Connect 2021 here in Nashville, Tennessee. John was nice enough to take a minute um, during the, uh, the the time here to talk with us uh, for this episode, and um, he he is part of a session tomorrow called the uh, the rural broadband challenges, which is something that I know a lot of listeners can relate to. So I'm looking forward to the panel tomorrow. It should be a very interesting panel. Got it. Now, there are providers who are here at this conference. It's a little different than a lot of the conferences I normally go to because we, we have bigger providers here. We have folks that are serving more urban areas than, than most of the rural folks um, that we normally have on the podcast. But, but I'm glad, that, um, I'm glad that, that they've still made sure to put a spot on the, the program for some rural broadband talk. So give us a preview then, John, uh, before the panel tomorrow. What are some of the things that you're going to be touching on uh, when, when the topic comes up on the panel about the challenges of rural broadband? Well, I'm going to be on the panel with uh, Joseph Fresnel. He's an operator in uh, rural Oregon, much, much larger territory than what we do at New Lisbon or at Pennsylvania Telephone Company, but a lot of the same issues. And, and Joe and I have both kind of talked about the topics and how we're going to handle the topics and what we've decided is that the best thing to do is just just take very little time talking about our companies and just open it up to the floor for questions but from a challenge standpoint uh, they're all over the board you've got supply chain issues getting materials that's that's really raised its ugly head here in the last year since covid right you've got labor issues and 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 we're like every other business and then some uh, we're not an entry-level type of, 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 of labor market. We have to have people with a lot of training, computer expertise, etc. It's getting harder and harder to find people. And then you throw on top of that billions of dollars that are being thrown at broadband build-outs. So everybody is looking to hire people to do this work. So it's getting more difficult there. That's the recipe for a labor shortage. It, it absolutely is. And then, you know, then you throw in on top of that all of the different agencies at both the state and federal level, all the different funding programs. It's a potpourri of... Uh, of funding programs, and quite frankly, uh, it, it's very confusing. 
And, sure. and one of the things we're going to touch on tomorrow is the coordination between these different agencies or the lack thereof, which is really the issue. Sure. So we've got state programs that have grants that the federal government's not aware of. So you get a kind of a classic overbuild situation. We've got federal programs that the state says, well, we're not aware of that. So you need to let us know. They don't coordinate. I mean, you've got RUS, you've got the FCC programs, you've got USAC involved, Congress is involved in legislation, NTIA is involved. There are so many different agencies that are involved right now in, in broadband that uh, they're stepping on each other. They're, they're stumbling around trying to figure out what to do. There is no one broadband czar, if you will, agency that says, okay, let's get all of this together Let's make a plan. Let's figure out how do we fund it, and let's all march to the same drummer. They're not doing that. They're all marching to different drummers, and as a small provider, it's very confusing. And and labor-intensive, using people and time you don't have to, to chase all of those. Well, that is another issue, is, is that as a small provider, you know, when you've only got 20 or 30 employees, you can't afford to dedicate an employee just to chasing down grants and loan opportunities and this, that, and the other. So then you've got to go out to consultants on the outside, and there's an added cost there, coordination efforts. Consultants so it aren't is, cheap. Consultants are not cheap, and, and, and if, especially good ones. Right. But uh, the other thing is I, I, I've got a, 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 a working friend of mine that has a saying. He says when there's a lot of money involved, bad actors always come out of the woods. And I think, I think we saw that years ago during the Obama administration with some of the BIP and BTOP money. People went out and overbuilt other, other entities or they, they started networks and they never completed them. I think we're going to see a lot of the same thing because, quite frankly, I, I don't think that, especially at the federal level, they're not doing the level of due diligence for these bidders and these winners that they should be doing. Uh, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of examples, you know, that I get money, but I'm not going to build a network because I don't have to because nobody really knows whether I have or not. Or I get money and I start to build the network and I don't finish it. Or I get money and, and, and Ardolf's a good example. I think you're going to see some of the big winners walk away from areas of Ardolf simply because they bid on it thinking they were going to be able to uh, to build it. Then when they do a little further due diligence, they realize that it doesn't cash flow, and they're going to say, you know what, I'll pay the penalty and walk away from it, which sounds okay at face value, but A, the penalties are much too small, okay. and B, if they walk away from it, how long will it be before those areas are able to get any type of broadband? Is it going to be another five years, another ten years? Right. So these programs... If you don't do them right up front, rural customers suffer, and that's, and that's the problem. Now, one thing I like about a lot of the state programs, much narrower time frames, a lot of the state programs that are grants, they're not spreading that money, like, say, Ardolf, over a 10-year period. So we are, not, we are an Ardolf winner in Indiana. So if we're going to spend, let's just take a number, $3 million to do the construction, and I get $300,000 over, over 10 years, you know, I have to 
bear the cost of that construction in year one, two, and three, and I don't get anything until the entire 10 years is up. Right. Whereas I can see how a, that would be a challenge. It absolutely is, whereas a lot of the state grant programs, they'll say, okay, we're going to give you 50, 60, 80% of a grant, but you have to have it built, turned up, and working, operating within two years. Very short time frame. And the, and has its own challenges, for sure. That's absolutely true, but, but let's face it. We are here to provide service for potential customers. If it takes five or six years to build a network, customers are doing without for that period of time. State grants say, nope, we want you to do it in two years, and if you can't do it, we'll find somebody else that can. So, Well, so a couple of things. I guess I should have done this at the beginning, but um, so the experience that you have in rural broadband, I guess, number one, you've got that in a couple of states now. But tell us just a little bit about uh, New Lisbon Telephone Company and then NLBC and, and um, the, the new area that you guys have, have moved into. Tell us, give us a little background on the company. Sure, and, that, and I'll, I guess I'll, I'll preface that by not necessarily a, a history of my work you know, in the business, but I've worked in rural areas in Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, Kansas, Nebraska, Indiana, and Pennsylvania. So I have worked in a very large part of this country, sure. predominantly in rural areas. And uh, so I feel like I know a little bit about it. Sounds like it. it. It's interesting when you say rural, it means different things in different places. That is true. So if I go to, to rural Indiana or rural Pennsylvania and we measure X number of customers per mile. Let's say in Indiana, we might average four or five customers per mile. You get in areas like Eastern Montana, and it may be one customer for 10 miles. So, you know, it, they're all rural, right? but vast difference. So you have to look at it from a perspective of what makes sense in those particular areas. You know, east of the Mississippi, for the most part, I would say that, that fiber to the home is going to be a very good competitor for any broadband. When you get west of the Mississippi, there are some areas in states like Wyoming and Montana that are so sparsely populated that fiber will never, ever work. It'll never pencil out because you'll be spending $30,000, $40,000 per customer. So maybe a LEO satellite or a fixed wireless solution is better, and maybe they'll never have the same level of broadband that somebody living in this part of the country would have. And and, and that's a tough thing to say if you're a politician. Sure. But, but it's also at the same to, time, it's reality. Yeah, it's tough to figure out how those $59 a month, $79 a month, broad, you know, internet service payments are gonna add up to the number. Yeah, absolutely. Anywhere so, close. So if you contrast uh, Indiana to Pennsylvania, the two companies that we run today, in Indiana, 80-90% of our construction is buried. Okay. Uh, we don't have a lot of problem with rock. We don't have a lot of problem with, with many houses per mile, so, so you can plow a lot of it. But even, even still, buried plant, we average about $40,000 a mile. Okay. And that's an all-in cost. Okay. Whereas in Pennsylvania, it's the other way around. It's 80 or 90% is aerial. Okay. because it's rock except in the valley. There, if you're looking at aerial plant, not counting make ready and pay attachments, but just the pure cost of construction, you may get by with $25,000 a month. 
So you've automatically got a little a little uh, discrepancy there between the cost of the bill. Right. Now that's assuming the fiber cable and the labor and everything else is the same. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we do have a little more density though. So that's that's another factor that enters into it. Sure, there, there, and there's so many pieces of it, you know, as we're putting it together. Well, let's let's talk big picture for a moment because rural, um, you know, rural parts of America, rural broadband is something you've obviously dedicated, um, you know, a lot of years of your life to, to focusing on. There are other places more more years than you've been alive. <laughs> That's possible, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so there are other places you could go to make more money, or there are other things that that you could have done. Why do you feel that rural connectivity is so important? Why is it worth fighting uh, these challenges? Well, one of the things that we always tell people uh, as a small rural provider is unlike the AT&Ts or the Comcast, and I pick on them a lot simply because they're the biggest, they're, they're, they're easy targets, but unlike AT&T and Comcast, I live in the rural area. I'm using our wireless service, and I don't like it nearly as much as if I'd had fiber. Now, we're, I'm going to get fiber in the next two years. That's a good thing. Okay. But, but not only am I using the services that we have, and I see the issues. So when we have a heavy ice storm, I lose connectivity. Or if a windstorm blows an antenna out of alignment or electrical storm and, and it knocks out my radios, I see the issues with that. I know what it's like to sit down on a Sunday evening and want to watch a TV show over the Internet, and my Internet goes down. It's not fun. It's not fun. The other side of it is not only do we live in the areas, but but we we go to church in the areas, we shop in the areas, we have neighbors. We see these people that are our customers every single day. You can't hide. <laughs> but but I can wear my NLBC logoed shirt and go to the grocery store and I'll likely run into three or four people. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, it's either to say, I love your service, you guys do a great job, or I know somebody or a relative that has it, and I wish I could get it. And that's what keeps us fired up and keeps us going back. So we're not a, we're not a cooperative. We're a for-profit uh, stockholder company. But all of my stockholders are rural residents for the most part, and a lot of them are my customers. So they're the same situation. So even though you know we we're, we don't have the the cooperative mentality that we're not here to make a profit. Yes, we are here to make a profit, but most importantly, we're here to provide reliable, affordable broadband service that everybody likes. And 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 know they're talking about the uh, the NPS scores this morning. I think it was uh, CSpire, and they had a 67 on their on their NPS score, which is very high. Our company scored a 65, which is very high, Excellent, yeah. which means most of my customers are, are pretty happy with the services they get. What do you think, and this is, uh, let's take a side trip down that uh, conversation. What do you think it is that, that does that? I mean, what, what do you think it is that they are? Because if you look at the scores for the big guys who you mentioned earlier, they're, they're nowhere near that. They're a whole lot lower. Yeah, in some cases, negative. Yeah, yeah. right. What do, you, what do you think it is? What do you guys do uh, that you think has people that, that are so happy to, to work with you guys? Well, I mean, you, you could say part of it is because it's affordable, and, and I think our, our service is affordable, but we don't 
base it on we want to be the low-cost provider. We may be, but that's not what drives us. It's more the reliability and the good customer service. So when a customer calls in and they've got a, a problem, if it's early enough in the day, we'll dispatch somebody on it that day and fix the problem. Or we'll call a tech that's in the field already and say, stop by Joe Smith's house on the way back. He's got a problem with his internet. You know, we don't keep people out of service for days or weeks. And, and I can tell you that, I hate to say this, but one of the best marketing tools we have is when the local provider in our competitive area has a big outage. We you're, go around knocking on doors. Absolutely. It, it's like, oh, you know, you've been out of internet now for what, three days? We've got fiber across the street. We can get it hooked up, and I guarantee you, you're not going to ever be out for three days again. Right. And it works. No, it's smart. Don't yep. uh, don't let a crisis go by without you know seeing take, it as an opportunity. Take every advantage we can. But I, I think right. it's the it's stellar customer service that's probably the number one reason why people like our service, why they flock to us. We actually, unlike the hospitality business that, that really tanked last year, airlines and restaurants and hotels, et cetera, our business last year skyrocketed. I believe it. We, we had a record year for new installs. We almost completed our, our uh, regulated ILEC area as far as fiber to the home. We did complete it earlier this year. So we've, we're down to less than 50 customers on the old copper network. And quite frankly, we're getting those cut over every week. By the end of this year, it'll be copper's gone and it's 100% fiber. Excellent. But what we found was that we had a lot of customers in our competitive area that while they were okay with substandard internet before COVID, now they've got kids doing school from home. That was me. They're trying to work from home. They're doing... uh, Zoom meetings right. with their family. I mean, we've all done that now, right. and we didn't do that before. Before we would just go visit them. Now right. it's like, no, I can't go visit them because they're in another state, and I don't want to travel. Sure. So we would have customers call and say, "How soon can you hook us up with fiber?" And it's like, well, you know, it's going to take us a week or two because we've got to get everything scheduled, or we have to have a permit, or you know, we have to do the locates. They couldn't get it quick enough. We literally could not keep up. With the uh, with the influx of new customer requests last year, and it wow. and it's so far it's continued into this year. You had mentioned earlier talking about NLBC and yeah, that's where I was headed next. So yeah, so you guys have the um, the the other company, I guess uh, another branch or subsidiary there in Pennsylvania. You've got the the ILEC in Indiana and then a CLEC. So you guys have changed a little bit about the way that you talk about yourself. Um, both in uh, with the, the the new brand for the uh, the CLEC and then um, you know communicating through purchasing the company in Pennsylvania. Talk me through just a little bit about how over the last few years you've changed the way that you talked about yourself and, and what do you think have you can credit the success both in Pennsylvania and Indiana for people understanding who you are and what you do now? Sure. So so when I started seven years ago, we had no CLEC. We were just a small ILEC with five or 600 customers, and that was it. Uh, a lot of telephone customers. Of course, they've since, most of them have migrated to cell phones even in the last seven years. Sure. But we didn't do anything outside of our regulated area. So New Lisbon Telephone Company 
been around for 120 years, 1901. I saw that. That's one of the older ones you hear about. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's like the third oldest in the state of Indiana and a lot older than most of the small companies that you run across. But yet people in our own county didn't even know we existed. They'd never heard of us because we never ventured out of that one little quarter section of the county. So the first thing that, that I did when we started is we put together a CLAC and we called it New Lisbon Broadband and Communications because you got to have broadband in there because that, that's, the, that's the platinum service now right. that we sell. Right. The biggest obstacle we had when we're going into areas that were served by AT&T or Frontier or Comcast is, well, who is New Lisbon Broadband? We've never heard of you. So we have you don't done have quite the, uh, the the TV commercial budget that some of no. those other guys are pouring on there. No. So. Now the one thing that was good is we didn't have the negative name well, recognition either. <laughs> so <laughs> right. we're starting with a clean slate. Sure. But we did a massive marketing campaign. We we do ads in local newspapers. We do billboards along the roads of the communities. We do radio uh, spots. I've got a, a, a vice president of marketing and sales that spent a lot of time in radio. And he's very storied in the state of Indiana as an announcer because he does all of the uh, Indiana State High School basketball and, and wrestling okay. tournaments and playoffs. Perfect radio voice. So he does all of our commercials. But the bottom line is we've been flooding the airways and the newspapers, et cetera, with marketing. But most importantly is you get one or two anchor companies in each little area or anchor residents, and if they like your service, they're going to wave that banner for you. So it's word of mouth is just as important as, as all the marketing media in the world in a rural area. Sure. Now, Pennsylvania is a little different. They have no communities. I mean, literally, there are no incorporated or even unincorporated communities. It's just little small areas where there might be 30 or 40 homes kind of in a grouping. Okay. Uh, little or no billboards tv and radio is all the big cities somewhere else right so we're going to have to change our marketing tact a little bit so we're going to go more with things the traditional old school yard signs door hangers sure. you know show up for church there on the sunday morning and just talk to people real quick and say hey by the way we're doing this right anything you can do to get the word out sure but Despite uh, all the marketing methods, even even in the in, in Pennsylvania, word of mouth is still is still a very powerful tool for marketing. Sure, when you can find those those champions that'll really hold, a yeah, absolutely. like you said, wave the banner for you. Absolutely. Uh, getting back to uh, more of the uh, the rural broadband challenge, but we started off there. Sorry for taking a little, little detour through a customer uh, customer satisfaction and branding. Um, those are always uh, top of mind for me, but. But getting back to the rural broadband challenges, what are some of the things you think that people don't understand about rural broadband? You know, right now, like you said, there, there's money being thrown around. So both politically and, and I'm not, you know, talking about either side of the aisle in Congress. I mean, there, there's a lot of attention um, the last, you know, last several years. Rural broadband is a thing that's getting a lot of attention. What do you think that the people who are late to the game, the people who are just now showing up to the game, uh, what did they not understand about rural broadband that folks like yourself who have been doing it a while know? Well, I think the first thing is you have to define 
what is rural broadband? Is is rural broadband the community of a thousand or fifteen hundred or twenty five hundred people? In my opinion, no. I think there are very few communities of size, and I'm I'm talking about a thousand to fifteen hundred and greater. Very few communities of size in this country that can't say they've got at least one decent broadband provider. Okay. Now there are there are some out there, and, and, and don't audience don't shoot me for saying that. <laughs> it's a big country. I'm sure but, there are some. There's but, some exceptions. But, but, but for the most part, the communities are not bad. It's not the the donut hole. It's the donut. So your your traditional cable TV providers stopped at the edge of town. And then there was nothing. Right. You know, they talked about municipal broadband and open broadband networks and things about like like that this morning in some of the panel discussions. But you didn't hear anybody talking about we're going to build out into the cornfields in the rural areas. No, they were talking about we're going to overbuild the communities. Right. Well, everybody goes after the same target, and that's because of population density. If I can hit 15 customers per block instead of one and a half per mile, I'm going to get a better return on my dollar. It's going to be cheaper to build. It's going to be much more revenue, and I'm going to get a quicker ROI, return on my investment. The problem is everybody is ignoring the donut, and that's where companies like mine have excelled over the years is is by our nature. We don't have the communities. We have everything in between the communities. The only other entity that's a recent entrance into uh, broadband that, that looks at it in a similar perspective is your rural electric cooperatives. Because and there are quite a few of those here. They do, and they have exactly the same situation because what happens is as soon as a, a community usually uh, incorporates, the REMC gets, gets kicked out uh, you know, when an investor-owned company comes in and they're stuck with what's left. So they understand the idea about rural is once you get to the town limits or the city limits, it's everything outside of that. But, but some of these other entities, I don't think they're really looking at rural broadband in the same respect that we do. You know, one of the biggest obstacles that I think we have to overcome going back to the uh, to, the, to the, uh, the different agencies is, the FCC is kind of the czar, if you will, of everything broadband in this country. If you look at, at and you can argue that we've got a lot of convoluted rules, the 477 is, is not worth anything, we want to get better mapping, the way the money is handed out. The FCC made all of those rules. Those are all FCC mandates. If there's a problem in this country that that we're not putting money in the right locations or we're not giving money to the right people or we're not focusing on the right, I hate to say this, but you have to lay it at the FCC's feet and say, you built this thing, these are your rules that we're following. If, If it's not working, it's not our fault. We're following the rules. You have to clean up your own house. And I think that's part of the issue is think about it, it's back to the politics. Every four years or eight years, right. a, a, you know, the Republican or Democrat takes over, the FCC does a fruit basket turnover, the incoming chairman doesn't agree with the outgoing chairman, so everything changes. There is not a lot of continuity from one administration to another. That's a good point. 
So Commissioner Pye's uh, initiatives that he started, probably not going to continue if, if uh, Acting Commissioner Rosenworcel gets appointed as commissioner. She's probably going to throw a lot of them out the window and say, we're going to start from scratch. But every time you do that, you just go back to square one. Right. And that makes it difficult. It, it especially makes it difficult for service providers trying to figure out which way the winds are blowing. Okay, last week we were going to work on this, but now we got a new regime. we got to work on something different. Right. One of the things um, that we've seen change over the years, and you brought it up, I, I was going to ask about that too. In the state of Indiana, how are things going um, with the, the electric co-ops, with the existing um, ILEX? Are y'all getting along pretty well or, and, and not overbuilding, or how would you say things are going there? I would say for the most part things are going well. Uh, the reason I say that, there are a lot of instances where rural electric co-ops and rural telephone or, or service providers are working in some type of a partnership. Uh, I've got three different electric cooperatives that I work with, and in all three cases, to some level, we've got some type of a partnership. If it's nothing more than, you know, we, we get a little bit of a break maybe on our make-ready work when we're putting fiber in. now. Of, of the three, none of them have decided to get into the broadband business. Uh, there are a couple of instances uh, where the electric co-ops have overbuilt uh, broadband cooperatives. And, and that leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth because it's like, look, you're, you're both kind of in the same arena. You're both cooperatives. Right. You're both rural companies. Can't you kind of divide things up and work together? But you know, anytime you get personalities involved, people don't get along, and, and, and you have to chalk it up to that. But no, I think for the most part, I think that it's been good partnerships, it's been good working relationships. I think that uh, I can probably speak for both the small telcos as well as the REMCs, that we were all sadly disappointed in the results of RDOF. We saw instances in some cases where large bidders or bidders that got a lot of money drop the bid down to 10%, 5%. In, in, in cases in uh, in Texas, I've heard they've even got down to zero. I know that uh, in areas that we bid on that, that the percentages drop below 20 or 25% and, and I'm out. It can't be built for that. So there's a big question now that everybody is asking is, okay, if the small guys that are in the area that already have a certain amount of infrastructure, or in the case of the electric cooperatives, they own the pole lines, right. if they can't make it work for, say, 25 or 30%, how can a big company or another company from out of state come in with, with no employees, no infrastructure, no idea of the lay of the land, and do it appreciably cheaper? I think the answer is they can't. So it goes back to we're disappointed because we don't think the FCC uh, did the due diligence up front, but time will tell. I Personally, I think, A, you're going to see some companies fail, but it won't be until five or six years that you see that. And the question is, will the FCC say, that's okay, we'll give you an extension like they have the big companies like CenturyLink and Frontier when they met, missed their obligations. B, you're gonna see some companies that will walk away from areas and say, we took a second look at it and we can't make any money, so we're not gonna do it. But that kicks the can down exactly. the road 
and those people don't get service. So I think it's unfortunate that, that if any of that occurs, I think it's unfortunate because the net loser is that rural you know, resident that doesn't get service. And who knows when the political will will be there again to get those kind of dollar signs out there for folks like that, for sure. Well, and, it, and, and one other point sure. is it actually doubles up. It's worse than that because, again, the coordination between programs for instance, our state uh, grant program says if there's already an RDOF winner, we're not going to award any money. I've got three counties that I know vast areas are unserved, but they were all awarded RDOF winnings. So I'm not able to go in and get any grant money to from build that out from the state, knowing that some of those areas are not going to get built. So if one agency somewhere screws up, it has a ripple effect across everybody else. It's the same, it's the same issue with the, with the bar, and that's, a, that's another obstacle we talk about is, is do we set the bar too low? And the answer is absolutely we do. Is 25-3 adequate? No. You can't do a Zoom call with 25-3. Certainly not you're, with the three side of that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So why are we still stuck on a measurement that was set several years ago, knowing that we're building stuff now for 10 years? By the time it gets built to 25-3, it'll be 15 years out of date. Right. So why don't we keep the threshold not based on what we need today, or God forbid, like we've got now yesterday, why don't we why don't we extrapolate out? There's a lot of studies out there. Use those studies and say the next threshold ought to be a hundred symmetrical or a gigabit. Sure. And and if you're going to get federal or state dollars to build it, then you have to build it to this level. Now, a lot of people have said that, but a lot of people are whining about it. Other companies are whining about it, saying, well, you're playing favorites. No, what we're doing is we're betting on the future, not the past. Absolutely. The, the last thing I had for you here, um, and I appreciate you sharing all those insights for us, uh, one or two things to do to fix some of these rural broadband challenges. Um, I don't know, you know, if, if you've got a magic wand and can wave it over uh, and just solve a couple of these things, but as we wrap up here, kind of looking towards the future, what are some things that, that make you hopeful that you see uh, we might be, you know, maybe we're getting better at it or maybe there's some changes coming that, that you think can help fix some of these. So there's several areas I think you can fo focus on. One we just talked about, don't worry about the technology, focus on what you want to do. If I say I want to get 100 symmetrical, I don't care if you do it with wireless, with satellite, or with fiber. This is, the, this is what you have to do. Low latency, 100 meg up, 100 meg down, if that's the bar. It should be technology neutral, but don't bend the rules to favor a technology. In other words, don't say, well, we'll do 100 by 20 because if we do 100 symmetrical, then the wireless companies can't play. You know what? Too bad. If the wireless companies can't play, then it's because their technology is not up to the game. The other thing is you got to get the mapping correct. You got to be able to go in and reasonably say this one's served or that one's served and this one's not served so that everybody can get service. Because customers don't understand the fact that 
nobody on my street has service, but somebody a mile away does, and that means I can't get it. That doesn't make any sense. It to makes no customers. sense whatsoever. The third thing is coordination of effort between all the different agencies. If you have to, roll it up. Roll it up to one agency. You know, you got three or four different federal agencies all playing in this space. Why? Why don't you have just one? Make it simple. And I think if you do that, you'll find a lot less uh, waste, a lot less overlap. And then the other thing that, that, that is frustrating is the whole supply chain and, and labor issues. Sure. You know, when I hear that, that we can't get electronics in, in the broadband world because all of the chipsets are being sent to the three big automakers so they can produce trucks and cars, I'm thinking, now wait a minute. The last I heard, they weren't putting billions of dollars into automobiles, and there wasn't an automobile shortage, but there is a broadband shortage. So why aren't we focusing all of our efforts on getting that problem solved? So we've got a little disconnect there. Sounds like it. Well, thank you so much for all those insight. He is John Green. He's CEO of New Lisbon Telephone Company in Indiana. John, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to Rural Broadband Today, where we take a look at the people and the issues shaping the rural broadband story across America. I'm your host, Andy Johns, filling in for Stephen Smith, and this program is produced by WordSouth, a content marketing company, an affiliation with Pioneer Utility Resources. Please share this episode with your network and help us tell the rural broadband story. Thank you for listening. Rural Broadband Today is a production of WordSouth, a content marketing company.